Help us make the sleepy bookshelf even better for you. You can vote on which books I should read at sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening and welcome to the sleepy bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me tonight. This evening, we'll be continuing with Anne of Green Gables. But before that, take some time here for yourself to breathe and relax. Think about where you are holding tension in your body and give yourself a nice, big stretch. If there is anywhere that needs some extra attention, give that bit another stretch now. Now take the deepest breath you have taken all day. And exhale with a long sigh. Sink into a comfortable position and feel yourself let go of the day, physically and mentally. In our last episode, Anne had begun her extra classes for the Queen's Entrance Examinations, along with a handful of other students. Diana was not one of them as her parents did not intend to send her to Queen's, and Anne missed her dearly. One evening, Mrs. Lynde came to visit to find out why Marilla had missed her aid meeting. Matthew hadn't been well that day, and she admitted that Anne was becoming a very bright and pretty young woman. Summer arrived, and Anne determined to fully enjoy it without studying or worrying about school. In the meantime, Marilla noticed how much Anne had grown and caught herself feeling melancholy about the loss of her little girl. By June, Anne had gone to Charlottetown with the other Queen's classmates to take the highly anticipated entrance exams and promise to write to Diana while she was there and tell her all about it. And that is where we pick our story back up tonight. Anne about to take her dreaded geometry exam. So lie back and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 32 The Pass List is Out Continued The geometry examination and all the others were over in due time and Anne arrived home on Friday evening, rather tired, but with an air of chastened triumph about her. Diana was over at Green Gables when she arrived, and they met as if they had been parted for years. You old darling, it's perfectly splendid to see you back again, said Diana. It seems like an age since you went to town, and oh, Anne, how did you get along? Pretty well, I think, in everything but the geometry, said Anne. I don't know whether I passed in it or not, and I have a creepy, crawly presentiment that I didn't. Oh, how good it is to be back. Green Gables is the dearest loveliest spot in the world. How did the others do? Asked Diana. The girls say they know they didn't pass, but I think they did pretty well. 
Josie says the geometry was so easy a child of 10 could do it. Moody Spurgeon still thinks he failed in history, and Charlie says he failed in algebra, but we don't really know anything about it and won't until the pass list is out. That won't be for a fortnight. Fancy living a fortnight in such suspense. I wish I could go to sleep and never wake up until it is over. Diana knew it would be useless to ask how Gilbert Blythe had fared, so she merely said, Oh, you'll pass all right. Don't worry. I'd rather not pass at all than not come out pretty well up on the list, flashed Anne, by which she meant, and Diana knew she meant, that success would be incomplete and bitter if she did not come out ahead of Gilbert Blythe. With this end in view, Anne had strained every nerve during the examinations. So had Gilbert. They had met and passed each other on the street a dozen times without any sense of recognition. And every time, Anne had held her head a little higher and wished a little more earnestly that she had made friends with Gilbert when he had asked her and vowed a little more determinedly to surpass him in the examination. She knew that all in Avonlea Junior was wondering which would come out first. She even knew that Jimmy Glover and Ned Wright had a bet on the question and that Josie Pye had said there was no doubt in the world that Gilbert would be first and she felt that her humiliation would be unbearable if she failed. But she had another, a nobler motive for wishing to do well. She wanted to pass high for the sake of Matthew and Marilla especially Matthew. Matthew had declared to her his conviction that she would beat the whole island. That, Anne felt, was something it would be foolish to hope for, even in the wildest dreams. But she did hope, fervently, that she would be among the first ten at least, so that she might see Matthew's kindly brown eyes gleam with pride in her achievement. That, she felt, would be a sweet reward indeed for all her hard work and patient grubbing among unimaginative equations and conjugations. At the end of the fortnight, Anne took to haunting the post office also in the distracted company of Jane, Ruby, and Josie opening the Charlottetown dailies with shaking hands and cold, sink-away feelings as bad as any experience during the entrance week. Charlie and Gilbert were not above doing this too, but Moody Spurgeon stayed resolutely away. I haven't the grit to go there and look at a paper in cold blood, he told Anne. I'm just going to wait until somebody comes and tells me suddenly whether I've passed or not. When three weeks had gone by without the pass list appearing, Anne began to feel she really couldn't stand the strain much longer. Her appetite failed her and her interest in Avonlea doings languished. Mrs. Lynde wanted to know what else you could expect with a Tory superintendent of education at the head of affairs. And Matthew, noting Anne's paleness and indifference and the lagging steps that bore her home from the post office every afternoon, began seriously to wonder if he hadn't better vote grit at the next election. But one evening, the news came. Anne was sitting at her open window, 
for the time forgetful of the woes of examinations and the cares of the world as she drank in the beauty of the summer dusk, sweet-scented with flower breaths from the garden below and sibilant and rustling from the stir of the poplars. The eastern sky above the firs was flushed, faintly pink from the reflection of the west. And Anne was wondering, dreamily, if the spirit of colour looked like that. When she saw Diana come flying down through the firs, over the log bridge and up the slope, with a fluttering newspaper in her hand. Anne sprang to her feet, knowing at once what that paper contained. The pass list was out. Her head whirled and her heart beat until it hurt her. She could not move a step. It seemed an hour to her before Diana came rushing along the hall and burst into the room without even knocking, so great was her excitement. Anne, you've passed, she said. Passed the very first, you and Gilbert both. You're tied, but your name is first. Oh, I'm so proud. Diana flung the paper on the table and herself on Anne's bed utterly breathless and incapable of further speech. Anne lighted the lamp, oversetting the match safe and using up half a dozen matches before her shaking hands could accomplish the task. Then she snatched up the paper. Yes, she had passed. There was her name at the very top of a list of two hundred. That moment was worth living for. You did just splendidly, Anne, said Diana, recovering sufficiently to sit up and speak, for Anne, starry-eyed and rapt, had not uttered a word. Father brought the paper home from Bright River not ten minutes ago. It came out on the afternoon train, you know, and won't be here till tomorrow by mail. And when I saw the pass list, I just rushed over like a wild thing. You've all passed, every one of you, Moody Spurgeon and all, although he's conditioned in history. Jane and Ruby did pretty well. They're halfway up, and so did Charlie. Josie just scraped through with three marks to spare, but you'll see she'll put on as many airs as if she'd led. Won't Miss Stacy be delighted? Oh, Anne, what does it feel like to see your name at the head of the pass list like that? If it were me, I know I'd go crazy with joy. I'm pretty near crazy as it is. You're as calm and cool as a spring evening. I'm just dazzled inside, said Anne. I want to say a hundred things, and I can't find the words to say them in. I never dreamed of this. Yes, I did too, just once. I let myself think once. What if I should come out first? Quakingly, you know? for it seemed so vain and presumptuous to think I could lead the island. Excuse me a minute, Diana. I must run right out to the field to tell Matthew. Then we'll go up the road and tell the good news to the others. They hurried to the hayfield below the barn where Matthew was coiling hay. And, as luck would have it, Mrs. Lynde was talking to Marilla at the lane fence. Oh, Matthew, said Anne. I've passed, and I'm first, or one of the first. I'm not vain, but I'm thankful. Well, now, I always said it, 
said Matthew, gazing at the pass list delightedly. I knew you would beat them all easy. You've done pretty well, I must say, Anne, said Marilla, trying to hide her extreme pride in Anne from Mrs. Rachel's critical eye. But that good soul said heartily, I just guess she has done well, and far be it from me to be backward in saying it. You're a credit to your friends, Anne, and that's what, and we're all proud of you. That night, Anne, who had wound up the delightful evening with a serious little talk with Mrs. Allen in the manse, knelt sweetly by her open window in a great sheen of moonshine and murmured a prayer of gratitude and aspiration that came straight from her heart. There was in it thankfulness for the past and the reverent petition for the future, and when she slept on her white pillow, her dreams were as fair and bright and beautiful as maidenhood might desire. Chapter 33 The Hotel Concert Put on your white organdy by all means, Anne, advised Diana decidedly. They were together in the East Gable Chamber. Outside it was only twilight, a lovely yellowish-green twilight with a clear blue cloudless sky. A big round moon slowly deepening from her pallid luster into a burnished silver hung over the haunted wood. The air was full of sweet summer sounds, sleepy birds twittering, freakish breezes, faraway voices and laughter. But in Anne's room, the blind was drawn and the lamp lighted, for important preparations were being made. The East Gable was a very different place from what it had been on that night four years before, when Anne had felt its bareness penetrate to the marrow of her spirit with its inhospitable chill. Changes had crept in, Marilla conniving at them resignedly, until it was as sweet and dainty a nest as a young girl could desire. The velvet carpet with the pink roses and the pink silk curtains of Anne's early visions had certainly never materialized, but her dreams had kept pace with her growth, and it is not probable she lamented them. The floor was covered with a pretty matting, and the curtains that softened the high window and fluttered in the vagrant breezes were of a pale green art muslin. The walls hung not with gold and silver brocade tapestry, but with a dainty apple blossom paper were adorned with a few good pictures given to Anne by Mrs. Allen. Miss Stacy's photograph occupied the place of honor, and Anne made a sentimental point of keeping fresh flowers on the bracket under it. Tonight, a spike of white lilies faintly perfumed the room like the dream of a fragrance. There was no mahogany furniture, but there was a white-painted bookcase filled with books, a cushioned wicker rocker, a small table befrilled with white muslin, a quaint, gilt-framed mirror with chubby pink cupids and purple grapes painted over its arched top that used to hang in the spare room, and a low, white bed. 
Anne was dressing for a concert at the White Sands Hotel. The guests had got it up in aid of the Charlottetown Hospital and had hunted out all the available amateur talent in the surrounding districts to help it along. Bertha Sampson and Pearl Clay of the White Sands Baptist Choir had been asked to sing a duet. Milton Clark of Newbridge was to give a violin solo. Winnie Adela Blair of Carmody was to sing a Scotch ballad. And Laura Spencer of Spencervale and Anne Shirley of Avonlea were to recite. As Anne would have said at one time, it was an epoch in her life, and she was deliciously a thrill with the excitement of it. Matthew was in the seventh heaven of gratified pride over the honor conferred on his Anne, and Marilla was not far behind, although she would have rather died than admit it. And she said she didn't think it was very proper for a lot of young folks to be gadding over to the hotel without any responsible person with them. Anne and Diana were to drive over with Jane Andrews and her brother, Billy, in their double-seated buggy, and several other Avonlea girls and boys were going too. There was a party of visitors expected out from town, and after the concert, a supper was to be given to the performers. Do you really think the organdy will be best? queried Anne anxiously. I don't think it's as pretty as my blue-flowered muslin. It certainly isn't so fashionable. But it suits you ever so much better said Diana. It's so soft and frilly and clinging. The muslin is stiff and makes you look too dressed up, but the organdy seems as if it grew on you. Anne sighed and yielded. Diana was beginning to have a reputation for notable taste in dressing, and her advice on such subjects was much sought after. She was looking very pretty herself on this particular night, in a dress of the lovely wild rose pink from which Anne was forever debarred. But she was not to take part in the concert, so her appearance was of minor importance. All her pains were bestowed upon Anne, who she vowed must for the credit of Avonlea, be dressed and combed and adorned to the queen's taste. Pull out that frill a little more, like so, said Diana. Here, let me tie your sash. Now for your slippers. I'm going to braid your hair in two thick braids and tie them halfway up with big white bows. No, don't pull out a single curl over your forehead. Just have the soft part. There is no way you do your hair that suits you so well, Anne. And Mrs. Allen says you look just like a Madonna when you part it so. I shall fasten this little white house rose just behind your ear. There was just one on my bush and I saved it for you. Shall I put my pearl beads on? asked Anne. Matthew bought me a string from town last week, and I know he'd like to see them on me. Diana pursed up her lips, put her black head on one side critically, and finally pronounced in favor of the beads, which were thereupon tied around Anne's slim, milk-white throat. There's something so stylish about you, Anne, said Diana, with unenvious admiration. You hold your head with such an air. I suppose it's your figure, 
I'm just a dumpling. I've always been afraid of it, and now I know it is so. Well, I suppose I shall just have to resign myself to it. But you have such dimples, said Anne, smiling affectionately into the pretty, vivacious face so near her own. Lovely dimples, like little dents in cream. I have given up all hope of dimples. My dimple dream will never come true. But so many of my dreams have that I mustn't complain. Am I all ready now? All ready, assured Diana as Marilla appeared in the doorway, a gaunt figure with greyer hair than of yore and no fewer angles, but with a much softer face. Come right in and look at our elocutionist, Marilla, Diana said. Doesn't she look lovely? Marilla emitted a sound between a sniff and a grunt. She looks neat and proper. I like that way of fixing her hair, but I'll expect she'll ruin that dress driving over there in the dust and dew with it. And it looks most too thin for these damp nights. Organdy's the most unserviceable stuff in the world anyhow, and I told Matthew so when he got it. But... There's no use in saying anything to Matthew nowadays. Time was when he would take my advice. Now he just buys things for Anne regardless. The clerks at Carmody know they can palm anything off on him. Just let them tell him a thing is pretty and fashionable and Matthew plunks his money down for it. Mind you keep your skirt clear of the wheel, Anne. Put your warm jacket on. Then Marilla stalked downstairs, thinking proudly how sweet Anne looked, with that one moonbeam from the forehead to the crown, and regretting that she could not go to the concert herself to hear her girl recite. I wonder if it is too damp for my dress said Anne anxiously. Not a bit of it, said Diana, pulling up the window blind. It's a perfect night, and there won't be any dew. Look at the moonlight. I'm so glad my window looks east into the sun rising, said Anne, going over to Diana. So splendid to see the morning coming up over those long hills and glowing through those sharp fir tops. It's new every morning, and I feel as if I washed my very soul in that bath of earliest sunshine. Oh, Diana, I do love this little room so dearly. I don't know how I'll get along without it when I go to town next month. Don't speak of your going away tonight, begged Diana. I don't want to think of it. It makes me so miserable. I do want to have a good time this evening. What are you going to recite, Anne? And are you nervous? Not a bit, Anne replied. I've recited so often in public, I don't mind at all now, and I've decided to give the maiden's vow. So pathetic. Laura Spencer is going to give a comic recitation, but I'd rather make people cry than laugh. What will you recite if they encore you? Asked Diana. They won't dream of encoring me scoffed Anne, who was not without her own secret hopes that they would, and already envisioned herself telling Matthew all about it at the next morning's breakfast table. There are Billy and Jane now. I hear the wheels. Come on. Billy Andrews insisted that Anne should ride on the front seat with him, 
so she unwillingly climbed up. She would have much preferred to sit back with the girls, where she could have laughed and chattered to her heart's content. There was not much of either laughter or chatter in Billy. He was a big, fat, stolid youth of twenty, with a round, expressionless face and a painful lack of conversational gifts. But he admired Anne immensely and was puffed up with pride over the prospect of driving to White Sands with that slim, upright figure beside him. Anne, by dint of talking over her shoulder to the girls and occasionally passing a sop of civility to Billy, who grinned and chuckled and never could think of any reply until it was too late, contrived to enjoy the drive in spite of all. It was a night for enjoyment. The road was full of buggies, all bound for the hotel, and laughter, silver clear, echoed and re-echoed along it. When they reached the hotel, it was a blaze of light from top to bottom. They were met by the ladies of the concert committee, one of whom took Anne off to the performer's dressing room which was filled with the members of a Charlottetown symphony club, among whom Anne felt suddenly shy and frightened and countrified. Her dress, which in the East Gable had seemed so dainty and pretty, now seemed simple and plain, too simple and plain, she thought among all the silks and laces that glistened and rustled around her. What were her pearl beads compared to the diamonds of the big, handsome lady near her? And how poor her one wee white rose must look beside all the hothouse flowers the others wore? Anne laid her hat and jacket away and shrank miserably into a corner. She wished herself back in the white room at Green Gables. It was still worse on the platform of the big concert hall of the hotel where she presently found herself. The electric lights dazzled her eyes. The perfume and hum bewildered her. She wished she was sitting down in the audience with Diana and Jane, who seemed to be having a splendid time away at the back. She was wedged in between a stout lady in pink silk and a tall, scornful-looking girl in a white lace dress. The stout lady occasionally turned her head squarely around and surveyed Anne through her eyeglasses until Anne, acutely sensitive of being so scrutinized, felt that she must scream aloud. And the white lace girl kept talking audibly to her next neighbor about the country bumpkins and rustic bells in the audience languidly anticipating such fun from the displays of local talent on the program. Anne believed that she would hate that white lace girl to the end of life. Unfortunately for Anne, a professional elocutionist was staying at the hotel and had consented to recite. She was alive dark-eyed woman in a wonderful gown of shimmering grey stuff like woven moonbeams, with gems on her neck and in her dark hair. She had a marvellously flexible voice and wonderful power of expression. 
the audience went wild over her selection. Anne, forgetting all about herself and her troubles for the time, listened with rapt and shining eyes. But when the recitation ended, she suddenly put her hands over her face. She could never get up and recite after that. Never. Had she ever thought she could recite? Oh, if she were only back at Green Gables. At this unpropitious moment, her name was called. Somehow, Anne, who did not notice the rather guilty little start of surprise the white lace girl gave, and would not have understood the subtle compliment implied therein if she had, got on her feet and moved dizzily out to the front. She was so pale that Diana and Jane, down in the audience, clasped each other's hands in nervous sympathy. Anne was the victim of an overwhelming attack of stage fright. Often as she had recited in public, she had never before faced such an audience as this, and the sight of it paralyzed her energies completely. Everything was so strange, so brilliant, so bewildering. The rows of ladies in evening dress, the critical faces, the whole atmosphere of wealth and culture about her. Very different, this, from the plain benches at the debating club, filled with the homely, sympathetic faces of friends and neighbors. These people, she thought, would be merciless critics. Perhaps like the white-laced girl, they anticipated amusement from her rustic efforts. She felt hopelessly, helplessly ashamed and miserable. Her knees trembled, her heart fluttered, a horrible faintness came over her. Not a word could she utter, and the next moment she would have fled from the platform despite the humiliation which she felt must ever after be her portion if she did so. But suddenly, as her dilated, frightened eyes gazed out over the audience, she saw Gilbert Blythe away at the back of the room bending forward with a smile on his face, a smile which seemed to Anne at once triumphant and taunting. In reality, it was nothing of the kind. Gilbert was merely smiling with appreciation of the whole affair in general and of the effect produced by Anne's slender white form and spiritual face against a background of palms in particular. Josie Pye, whom he had driven over, sat beside him, and her face certainly was both triumphant and taunting. But Anne did not see Josie and would not have cared if she had. She drew a long breath and flung her head up proudly, courage and determination tingling over her like an electric shock. She would not fail before Gilbert Blythe. He should never be able to laugh at her. Never, never. Her fright and nervousness vanished, and as she began her recitation, her clear, sweet voice reaching to the farthest corner of the room without a tremor or a break. Self-possession was fully restored to her, and in the reaction from that horrible moment of powerlessness, 
she recited as she had never done before. When she finished, there were bursts of honest applause. Anne, stepping back to her seat, blushing with shyness and delight, found her hand vigorously clasped and shaken by the stout lady in pink silk. My dear, you did splendidly, she puffed. I've been crying like a baby. Actually, I have. There, they're encoring you. They're bound to have you back. Oh, I can't go, said Anne confusedly. But yet, I must, or Matthew will be disappointed. He said they would encore me. Then don't disappoint Matthew, said the pink lady, laughing. Smiling, blushing, limpid-eyed, Anne tripped back and gave a quaint, funny little selection that captivated her audience still further. The rest of the evening was quite a little triumph for her. When the concert was over, the stout pink lady, who was the wife of an American millionaire, took her under her wing and introduced her to everybody, and everybody was very nice to her. The professional elocutionist, Mrs. Evans, came and chatted with her, telling her that she had a charming voice and interpreted her selections beautifully. Even the white lace girl paid her a languid little compliment. They had supper in the big, beautifully decorated dining room. Diana and Jane were invited to partake of this also, since they had come with Anne, but Billy was nowhere to be found, having decamped in mortal fear of some such invitation. He was waiting for them, with the team, however, when it was all over and the three girls came merrily out into the calm, white, moonshine radiance. Anne breathed deeply and looked into the clear sky beyond the dark boughs of the firs. Oh, it was good to be out again in the purity and silence of the night. How great and still and wonderful everything was, with the murmur of the sea sounding through it and the darkling cliffs beyond like grim giants guarding enchanted coasts. Hasn't it been a perfectly splendid time? sighed Jane as they drove away. I just wish I was a rich American and could spend my summer at a hotel and wear jewels and low-neck dresses and have ice cream and chicken salad every blessed day. I'm sure it would be ever so much more fun than teaching school. Anne, your recitation was simply great, although I thought at first you were never going to begin. I think it was better than Mrs. Evans's. Oh, no, don't say things like that, Jane, said Anne quickly, because it sounds silly. could never be better than Mrs. Evans is, you know, for she is a professional, and I am only a schoolgirl with a little knack of reciting. I'm quite satisfied if the people just liked mine pretty well. I've a compliment for you, Anne said Diana. At least, I think it must be a compliment because of the tone he said it in. Part of it was, anyhow. There was an American sitting behind Jane and me, such a romantic-looking man, with coal-black hair and eyes. 
Josie Pye says he is a distinguished artist and that her mother's cousin in Boston is married to a man that used to go to school with him. Well, we heard him say, didn't we, Jane? Who is that girl on the platform with the splendid tightening hair? She has a face I should like to paint. There now, Anne. But what does Titian hair mean? Being interpreted means plain red, I guess, said Anne, laughing. Titian was a very famous artist who liked to paint red-haired women. Did you see all the diamonds those ladies wore? sighed Jane. They were simply dazzling. Wouldn't you just love to be rich, girls? We are rich, said Anne staunchly. Why, we have 16 years to our credit, and we're happy as queens. And we've all got imaginations, more or less. Look at that sea, girls, all silver and shadow and vision of things not seen. We couldn't enjoy its loveliness any more if we had millions of dollars and ropes of diamonds. You wouldn't change into any of those women if you could. Would you want to be that white lace girl and wear a sour look all your life, as if you'd been born turning up your nose at the world? Or the pink lady, kind and nice as she is, so stout and short that you'd really no figure at all. Or even Mrs. Evans, with that sad, sad look in her eyes. She must have been dreadfully unhappy sometime to have such a look. You know you wouldn't, Jane Andrews. I don't know exactly, said Jane, unconvinced. I think diamonds would comfort a person for a good deal. Well, I don't want to be anyone but myself. Even if I go on uncomforted by diamonds all my life, declared Anne. I'm quite content to be Anne of Green Gables with my string of pearl beads. I know Matthew gave as much love with them as ever went with Madame the Pink Lady's jewels. Chapter 34 A Queen's Girl The next three weeks were busy ones at Green Gables, for Anne was getting ready to go to Queen's and there was much sewing to be done and many things to be talked over and arranged. Anne's outfit was ample and pretty, for Matthew saw to that, and Marilla for once made no objections whatever to anything he purchased or suggested. Moreover, one evening she went up to the East Gable with her arms of a delicate, pale green material. Anne, here's something for a nice light dress for you, said Marilla. I don't suppose you really need it. You've plenty of pretty waists, so I thought maybe you'd like something real dressy to wear if you were asked out anywhere of an evening in town to a party or anything like that. I hear that Jane and Ruby and Josie have got evening dresses, as they call them, and I don't mean for you to be behind them. I got Mrs. Allen to help me pick it out in town last week, and we'll get Emily Gillis to make it for you. Emily has got taste, and her fits aren't to be equaled. Oh, Marilla... It's just lovely, said Anne. Thank you so much. I don't believe you ought to be so kind to me. It's making it harder every day for me to go away. 
The green dress was made up with as many tucks and frills and shearings as Emily's taste permitted. Anne put it on one evening for Matthew's and Marilla's benefit and recited the maiden's vow for them in the kitchen. As Marilla watched the bright, animated face and graceful motions, her thoughts went back to the evening Anne had arrived at Green Gables, and memory recalled a vivid picture of the odd, frightened child in her preposterous yellowish-brown wincy dress, the heartbreak looking out of her tearful eyes. Something in the memory brought tears to Marilla's own eyes. I declare, my recitation has made you cry, Marilla, said Anne, cheerfully stooping over Marilla's chair to drop a butterfly kiss on that lady's cheek. Now I call that a positive triumph. No, I wasn't crying over your peace, said Marilla, who would have scorned to be betrayed into such weakness by any poetry stuff. I just couldn't help thinking of the little girl you used to be, Anne. I was wishing you could have stayed a little girl, even with all your strange ways. You've grown up now, and you're going away. You look so tall and stylish, so different altogether in that dress, as if you didn't belong in Avonlea at all. I just got lonesome thinking it all over. Marilla... Anne sat down on Marilla's gingham lap, took Marilla's lined face between her hands, and looked gravely and tenderly into Marilla's eyes. I'm not a bit changed, not really. I'm only just pruned down and branched out. The real me, back here, is just the same. It won't make a bit of difference where I go or how much I change outwardly. At heart, I shall always be your little Anne, who will love you and Matthew and dear Green Gables more and better every day of her life. Anne laid her fresh, young cheek against Marilla's faded one and reached out a hand to pat Matthew's shoulder. Marilla would have given much just then to have possessed Anne's power of putting her feelings into words, but nature and habit had willed it otherwise, and she could only put her arms close about her girl and hold her tenderly to her heart, wishing that she need never let her go. Matthew, with a suspicious moisture in his eyes, got up and went out of doors. Under the stars of the blue summer night, he walked across the yard to the gate under the poplars. Well now, I guess she hasn't been much spoiled he muttered proudly. Guess my putting in my oar occasionally never did her much harm after all. She's smart and pretty and loving too. She's better than all the rest. She's been a blessing to us and there never was a luckier mistake than what Mrs. Spencer made. If it was luck, I don't believe it was any such thing was providence, because the Almighty saw we needed her, I reckon. <laughs>